0: Today I'm joined by Danar Talabani, a doctor, a hospital doctor uh, who specializes in kidney and transplant medicine and is a scientist currently completing a PhD in immunology. He has been volunteering for the British Society of Immunology and Team Halo to produce science-backed content on the COVID vaccines on social media and other channels to help facilitate informed decision-making and combat vaccine Misinformation. Thank you for joining us.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me along.
0: Now I'm going to take the position of a vaccine hesitant person, representing. I did a post on Facebook and got about a hundred uh, comments from people. I said I would be um, interviewing you, so mm-hmm. I'm sort of representing their position. And <laughs> rather ironically, um, two days ago I got COVID. <laughs> It kicked in in the afternoon uh, with uh, coughing, temperature, uh, uh, fever, body aches, and I did what I always do because I was a student of the late Dr Linus Pauling and that is to take a gram an hour of vitamin C uh, plus zinc and I've already got very good vitamin D levels and within 24 hours I was symptom free. So it kind of leads me to one of the first questions and uh, by the way please correct me if anything I say is wrong and also even though we won't you know be sort of doing references of studies live I can post any studies uh, later so we can kind of refer to something and then put it out there for people to see. My understanding is that the uh, COVID vaccines are experimental vaccines in the sense that they have not yet completed the the full safety trials required to get medicinal license. Is that correct?
1: That's incorrect because I think there's a there's a, a confusion with um, what's written on the website and what clinical trials actually mean. So the clinical trials are all complete and clinical trials phases one to three were conducted starting March 2020 and con- finished in December. Um, and c- phases one to three are to test the safety and then the efficacy how effective something works. Um, And that phase is complete. And actually normally we conduct clinical trials on two to 3,000 people at phase three. These were conducted collectively on over 100,000 people. So already we started out with better data than for other vaccines and other uh, treatments. The reason that they are still being called experimental by some is because there is the continuous monitoring that will continue for years after something has made available for use routinely and that's true for these vaccines and all other treatments and the reason that follow-up that continuous monitoring is important is because there are certain groups that will not be included in clinical trials and so we need to be able to first of all make sure that the effect the benefit that we're seeing in the clinical trials is also replicated in the real world where people are out and about and the virus is spreading, et cetera. And two, for the certain groups who are not included in clinical trials, so I I work with transplant patients, transplant Mm -hmm. patients who are immunocompromised and not included in clinical trials. And so because their risk of COVID is very high and because the the vaccines were safe in clinical trials, they were given the vaccine routinely. They were one of the first groups to receive it because of their high risk profile with COVID. And so that continuous monitoring gives us an idea particularly in in that one example group of how effective the vaccine is in that group. Um, And that monitoring is actually really important because that's how we've been able to identify the rarer risk factors, the ones that we would have only seen if we'd given the vaccines to millions and millions of people. But by now we've given over 7 billion doses, so we know the rarer side effects. Um, And so to say they're experimental, it's it's just not, not correct.
0: So they've now got medicinal license. They no longer need to be used under emergency laws. Is that correct? So,
1: so they're they're approved. They have full approval in places like Canada, the TGA in Australia, FDA in the in the US. They're still under emergency approval use in the UK. I don't know when that will be converted. But in terms of data Mm -hmm. on safety efficacy, we have what we need to know that they work and that they're safe.
0: Okay, and what you're talking about is sometimes called phase three B or phase four post surveillance monitoring.
1: So phase three is complete, it's the phase four surveillance monitoring, yes.
0: Okay, and um, is it a requirement to, uh, I mean, certainly it would seem ethical to let people know about other approaches that can be effective? So here's someone, you know, is being told that the only way is vaccination. Uh, My area of speciality has been nutrition for the past 40 years. Uh, Dr Mm -hmm. Linus Pauling, twice Nobel prize winner, 48 PhDs, proved that you could stop flu uh, developing into anything serious requiring hospitalization, 1975. We now have 18 intervention trials, six randomized controlled trials. Finally, after a lot of campaigning, Uh, NICE, that's the National Institute of Clinical Excellence, RAPID-C19 and Public Health England have accepted uh, that there is this level of clinical evidence. I haven't focused specifically on vitamin D, but there's a similar quantity of evidence. So my question is, why are we not being told about other things that you can do, which could be complementary or potentially even alternative?
1: So my answer to that would be that we are, and we are using other measures for COVID-19. We've conducted clinical clinical trials um, on things like ivermectin that have overall shown no benefit and so we're not using ivermectin. We've conducted clinical trials on dexamethasone which is a very cheap and available drug Um, in most parts of the world, and that has shown benefits. So when patients are admitted into hospital and they reach a certain threshold, the evidence is very clear that giving dexamethasone is beneficial. And so we are using that routinely and have been for many months. And in fact, those clinical trials started out in the UK. Um, In terms of other measures, so there's been studies on vitamin D, large scale studies on vitamin D that have shown no uh, correlated benefits in terms of COVID nineteen outcome. Some smaller studies have, but the larger, but the larger studies haven't shown any benefit. And I guess here we're talking about degree of evidence and um, quality of evidence. Mm -hmm. What we don't have are randomized control trials or meta-analyses bringing all the studies together. And some studies have found some small benefits and some studies have found no Mm benefits. So really what we need is a really good controlled uh, randomized control trial with a placebo group, because all the studies that you mentioned to the, the ones that I'm aware of, none of them had a placebo Uh, group to see if there is an actual significant benefit in terms of statistical analysis with those who receive the intervention versus those that don't?
0: Well, you're you're not actually correct there, because if you mention the dexamethasone study, in the most critical COVID patients, that's with a SOFA score over three, the dexamethasone versus placebo produced a 30% reduction in mortality now, the first randomized placebo-controlled trial on vitamin C, we are talking here about intravenous vitamin C, uh, was conducted in Wuhan at Zhongnan University Hospital. Uh, one of the authors is Peng, and it was a lovely study. Uh, what happened, they took, by the way, that 30% reduction in mortality is in the ventilated patients in the dexamethasone study, so exactly the same cohort of patients in the vitamin C study Um, So half of them got placebo, which was sterile water, the other half got intravenous vitamin C, uh, was a statistically significant 70% reduction in mortality. So more than double that seen uh, with dexamethasone. So that was the first placebo controlled randomized trial on vitamin C.
1: Okay. Well, I'm not aware of that study, so I'll have to read into it myself. But in terms of dexamethasone, it's not just one study that has led to using it it routinely. And it's not just patients who were in ITU and ventilated, um, it was actually patients who were hospitalized as well. And it, re- it showed a reduction in those, i.e. in patients who developed severe COVID needing hospitalization and oxygen yes. intervention showed a significant reduction in multiple studies across the board. Um, no. so, th- actually, so, so the evidence for dexamethasone is very robust, but I'm not aware of all the evidence on vitamin C. Um, yes. So I really can't comment on that.
0: No, fair enough. But the, I mean, just to sort of, um, I work with the group at Chelsea and Westminster who are using both steroids, um, that's dexamethasone, and vitamin C. And what's fascinating, uh, by the way, is all animals who make vitamin C can't get COVID. It appears that what cortisol actually does is, is two things. It enhances the absorption of vitamin C into cells. And also, um, through a, uh, it, it increases glucose production, which in animals is used to make vitamin C. So st- steroids, cortisol plus vitamin C, are a critical combo. And in the ICUs that we're working with, who are using both intravenous vitamin C and steroids and um, some anticoagulants. They've managed to get mortality rate down to between five and 8%. And one of our professors uh, at East Virginia Medical School basically said he has had no death of anyone um, under the age of 85, who doesn't already um, have an end stage disease?
1: Yeah. So ag- again, I think we have to be very careful because what someone says happen in in their scope of practice again is not quality evidence. That's anecdotal evidence, isn't it? It's not it's not randomised control trials of placebo and control where we reduce bias. But again, I, I really can't comment on vitamin think, C
0: as a. Do you think um, it's ethical at this point if you have? a substance as safe as vitamin C, which already has maybe 50 years of evidence as an antiviral agent, to actually do placebo trials at this point in time?
1: Placebo trials in COVID patients, yes, because we we don't have that data. But in terms of, but if you're saying if people should have vitamin C if they have COVID, I'm. I'm not against that. I, all I can say is the data that we have in terms of randomized, robust randomized controlled no. trials, don't say that there is a clear benefit, or because we don't have that data. Right. But anyway, I'm. I, I'm if, a, yeah. if if I, that I, data was available, then yeah, absolutely, it's a yeah. cheap, safe thing to administer.
0: And then moving back a bit more into the sort of public facing, because you know, it as a different situation here. Yeah. Um, the only randomized controlled trial we have. I mean, basically, all the evidence prior to COVID indicated that eight grams, which is pretty much eight vitamin C tablets, one gram is 20 oranges, or more, significantly reduces duration and severity of infection. So that already existed. Professor Harry Hemmler, a professor and doctor of public health in Helsinki University, is probably the world's expert on that, and he wrote to The Lancet and the BMJ to say, you know, there's a very robust case for recommending this. Now, uh, since then, we've had the randomized controlled trial of Thomas et al, who gave eight grams um, versus placebo to outpatients, perhaps a little bit late in the infectious process, but actually what it showed was a 70% improved recovery rate. So we are talking here about a you know, in the more critically ill, something like three days less infection. My-
1: Patrick, I'm 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 very happy to have this conversation, but yeah. I honestly I can't I can't comment on these studies okay. because I've not seen them. Um, and okay. what what I'm happy to do yeah. is answer any questions about vaccines because okay. that's data I'm much more um, aware okay. of and, so, and read so up on.
0: The reason I sort of started here was the belief that if someone's going to be offered a treatment, in this case, a vaccine, yeah. they could
1: also tentative measure, but yeah.
0: They should also be informed about what else is out there that could help them. Um, yes. Yeah. And the other thing they need to be informed about, which I think, it's the next point we move to, is any dangers and downsides. Right.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So just on that on that front, I think that's a very good point. But we we have been doing that. So, you know, we've made it very clear that wearing masks in indoor places does significantly reduce transmission, and that's a very safe, easy in. You know nothing that that's too inconvenient to do um fresh air and good ventilation in indoor spaces because of how we know covid sp- spreads so this isn't uh this isn't a you must have your vaccine situation it's uh these are the measures that have been shown in robust data and, and randomized clinical trials where an intervention is concerned um, that has worked against COVID. For other things, we don't have the data to suggest that it does work. For some things, we have done that, that we have done the research. So, vitamin D, for example. By the way, I take vitamin D because I have vitamin D insufficiency. I have nothing against vitamin D. Yeah. Um, but it's we should follow the science, and that's really all I'm trying to advocate here. Mm-hmm. Um, and and where there is not, where there is no robust. Um, randomized clinical trial data, but there is some study suggesting benefit. There should be a, a, a randomized clinical trial data to see if there is that clear benefit in the context of COVID. But again, vitamin C in itself is beneficial for lots of other reasons. So, you know, again, What's you know, I, I take vitamins regularly.
0: What about the China example and Uttar Pradesh. Um, basically what happened on the 2nd of February, um, 2020, Uh, the Chinese government shipped 50 tonnes, that's 50 million grams, of vitamin C into Wuhan and gave it to all infected patients. And ironically, um, the first randomised controlled trial, the one I mentioned, which was meant to have 140 patients, ran out of patients because by the end of April, and ever since, their ICU has not had a single case of critical COVID. And when I asked again, them, yeah.
1: So again, they gave it to every single patient. So they didn't have patients that were mm. not receiving a vitamin C to do a direct comparison. Well, um, I, and, yes, and, and, I, and so
0: I appreciate you say that, but I, it seems to me a little crazy to just hook everything into only the evidence of randomized placebo controlled trials. I mean, in Uttar Pradesh, what they decided to do. Uh, was when, a, when somebody became infected, they sent them a kit with vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc, mm-hmm. um, and other components. And they did very well uh, with a 12% vaccination rate. Uh, they actually have a tenth of the mortality rate that we have. Uh, just last week, the Surgeon General in Florida has advised all people to supplement or consider supplementing vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc, and
1: quercetin. Is so, this the same Surgeon General who um, is against mask mandates? Is that the right, is that the correct person?
0: I have no idea about that.
1: I think that's the same gentleman who came out and said we shouldn't be wearing masks indoors. And we actually know the evidence for that is very, very robust. We've, you know, we've got meta analyzes showing significant reduction. Well, so I, again, I'm not, you know, I, people's right. opinions are f- irrelevant, um, including mine, by the way. I'm only really here to present the evidence in, in what we know.
0: Okay. Um, Let's move on to the next thing, which is fully informing people about potential risks. Yeah. So we are here now in a situation where the MHRA, that's the Medicines Health Regulation Authority, Mm -hmm. has recorded um, over 1,800 deaths, um, largely reported by doctors that they think are associated with the vaccination, and hundreds of thousands of adverse reactions. Uh, In the States, which is five times the size, they're up to about 20,000 deaths. So in other words, you'd expect 10,000, but it's even more in relation to their population. And we really don't hear very much about this. And uh, what kind of appalls me when I go onto the MHRA website uh, is there's a sort of throwaway line that we don't think the vaccines is causative. uh, it, it seems, it, you know, there's no, there's no study of it. There's no commission looking at those deaths. We are, of course, aware of things like uh, mm-hmm. you know, in relation to the mRNA vaccines. We're obviously very aware of thrombocytopenia and the thromboembolic uh, events associated more with AstraZeneca. Uh, these are even recorded on the MHRA website, you know, to get yeah. with, with deaths. Um, uh, you know, we have 75 fatal uh, deaths recorded from thromboembolic events with thrombocytopenia. So, yeah. are people being fully informed that there is a risk? Of, there is a risk of death, albeit small.
1: Yes, I think people are being, being fully informed. The issue is that there is a huge misinterpretation of data and a lack of understanding of what the yellow card system and the VES system are. So they are reporting systems. So anybody can go on there. You and I can go on there and say, I had paracetamol this morning and then I fell over and broke my leg. And that would go into the 1,800 reported deaths that you just mentioned related to the vaccines. Correlation is not causation. And so the way that we define causation is to take a population, so take uh, say 100,000 people who've had the vaccine, and age match them to people who haven't had the vaccine, and then look at the rates of um, things that you mentioned, to so pericarditis, uh, death, etc. And then there's the investigation into what caused those deaths and, and those events to happen. Because as you know, Patrick, if we, if we take the whole population, in, in the next year, there will be people who have certain number will have heart attacks and strokes and all of the medical conditions that can normally occur. Um, but just because someone had the vaccine a week or so before that doesn't necessarily mean the vaccine caused it. So the way to try and uh, first of all, define if the vaccine increases risks of things, happening is, as I said, to take a population of people who've had the vaccine and compare that to their unvaccinated population, but age match them and match them in terms of demographics and social background and other underlying health conditions. And when we do that, we can see very clearly that the risks of those rarer side effects are incredibly rare in the vaccinated groups. But actually, the decision that I think we have to make isn't vaccine versus no vaccine, it's vaccine versus COVID. Because we want to get back to a situation where we have no restrictions in place and the virus is allowed to spread um, without any social restrictions. So ideally, we would be in a scenario where there is where there are no lockdowns and we know we we, we shouldn't have to wear masks and, you know, implement these social distancing measures. But the way to do that is to have a population that's vaccinated that can't um, catch the virus in great numbers, can't spread it in great numbers and Uh, can't die from it and that's 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 significant not to develop severe disease from it and so when we actually
0: yeah i'd like to come back to that but first of all dig a little bit deeper Um, as i understand it the current situation we have um and teenagers is a wonderful example and point is that the incidence of myo and pericarditis um, is way higher than would normally be expected within each age group but especially in the teenager age group. I I read one report that has summed up 600 vaccine-associated cardiac deaths in teenagers, globally.
1: No, so no, so that's incorrect. So that's incorrect. So the reason I say this is because I was just about to make the point that what we see, the rarer side effects of the vaccines cause are actually far more common in COVID and often far more severe. And my own pericarditis is a very good example of this because what we see in COVID in terms of my own pericarditis, including in teenagers, it's at least six times more common in that demographic if you catch COVID than if you were to have it following vaccination. And it's more severe. So the studies have looked at ejection fraction, which is a measure of cardiac function. And the reduction in ejection fraction lasts longer, about three, four times longer in people who've had COVID, including that, that age group, compared to those who've had the vaccine. We've not had anyone who's, die, who's died from periomyocarditis my- my- following vaccination. But we have had children and teenagers and other um, age groups die from myo- own pericarditis following COVID infection. And we've also had those, we've had a a significant number, albeit small, but significant because these are children who are otherwise well, go on to need things like heart transplants. Um, And of course, COVID doesn't just cause myopericarditis, it also causes heart attacks and other significant um, cardiac, but also other health issues. Is the mechanism
0: of this, the spike protein and ACE2 receptors?
1: No, do you mean in COVID or do you mean in the vaccines?
0: Both, because we're seeing. I so, mean, in the states, there are a number of, of deaths directly caused by vaccines in relation to periomyocarditis. On the MHRA reports, there isn't a death, but there are. Um, you know, there are plenty of cases. I think um, 1,336 cases.
1: So, 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 you're so you're basing that on the VERS website. But again, we said that. No, VERS no. Is no a... What I
0: just mentioned, the 1,336 was the. Uh, by the way, something else that I would love you to clarify here. I have a couple um, who, uh, one used to be a news reporter, uh, and the other is a, is a is medical journalist of the year. And the, the lady, uh, the news reporter, um, had a terrible reaction um, after having had the flu jab and the booster, and she still hasn't recovered a month later. Uh, she's a bright woman. Uh, she went in to try to post a yellow card report and failed. So one thing I would love is do please give us the link um, so, that it, so that a person can post their own yellow card report. Um, yeah, the hus- honestly, the husband- that's, that's
1: easily uh-huh. available on the government website. If you just click on, if you Google the MHRA, the link is easily available. Uh-huh. Okay. And and you're right. Anyone can go and report. So they can go and report, or, the, or a health professional can go and report. Anyone can report. Yes,
0: and the my, other... four, my
1: four-year-old can go and report on there. That's that's how easy it is to go and report. Now,
0: also, I would like to get your opinion because um, uh, in the UK we've got the um, uh, the the UK Drug Safety Unit down at the University mm-hmm. of Portsmouth, and they did a very nice systematic re- review meta-analysis uh, on. Uh, deaths and adverse reactions reported on yellow card systems versus what actually happened. So this was situations where they could find out what actually happened. And um, their report concluded that 98% of deaths do not get yellow carded. Now, um, I went a little bit closer into their study to look at um, vaccine-related deaths and even a little bit closer still to look at issues like thrombocytopenia and found a study of MMR um, where there were deaths as a result of thromboembolic events with um, the with, uh, cytopenia. And in that particular study, which in a sense was the most favorable in relation to the vaccines, um, the under-reporting was half. So in other words, if two deaths occurred, only one got reported. So would you agree that even though not on the question yet of establishing causation, that the yellow card numbers are going to be a fraction of what actually happens?
1: Yes, because it's based on reporting. But that doesn't necessarily mean that what actually happens is still down to the vaccines or down to whatever. Because again, all of these, all the conditions you've just mentioned were around before COVID and before the vaccine. So there are lots of different things that cause these issues. But the the thing I would say here is there there are robust um, studies that have looked at comparing populations that have been very well investigated who've had vaccines and who've had COVID and they've looked at the difference in these complications in people who have COVID versus vaccines. And every single side effect that the vaccine causes is far more common in COVID infection than in the vaccine and often more severe but the except for one and that and i'm happy to share the data with you that mm-hmm. one that is lymphadenopathy which is swollen lymph nodes which lasts a few weeks which we expect to see because your body once having the vaccine produces immune cells and that's where they reside and that's where they do all their work
0: mm-hmm. that swelling
1: of lymph nodes then then settles but, but you have that immunity from the vaccine but every other side effects so pericarditis clots clots happen in one in five people in covid we're talking serious clots that cause hospitalizations, but not even including the microclots that cause mm-hmm. things like COVID toes and um, and, and and digit um, necrosis and things like that. We're talking serious clots that result in hospitalization and death, far more common in COVID infection. And I think that's it. So we, we, we can delve into the data and everything, but actually it's important to take a step back and put things in context and say, this is the risk of COVID mm-hmm. and this is the risk of the vaccines. And if we wanna get back to a situation where we don't have to implement social measures, What can we do to mitigate the risk of COVID?
0: I want to have that conversation with you, but I've just got a few more adverse people are concerned about. And my understanding is that it is the spike proteins of the the virus. I mean, we did a very good interview with Dr Malcolm Kendrick, who's a bit of an expert on things cardiovascular. And he pointed out that, you know, whenever you get an immune insult, you get clotting. Mm -hmm. The two things go absolutely hand in hand and they also go hand in hand with spike protein mrna vaccines.
1: it just has oh so i'll just i'll just stop you there one moment because the spike protein in the vaccine is actually modified so it's completely harmless. it doesn't actually do anything to us and it doesn't travel around the body. i should probably explain this now. so the spike protein in the vaccine is actually modified so that it's not the same spike protein as what's in the virus and it's therefore harmless. all the spike protein does is when we actually form the spike protein after we inject the vaccine into our arms. The cells in our arms make that spike protein. It doesn't then replicate like uncontrollably like we see in the COVID virus. It stays in the cells in those arms. Our immune system goes along, actually then gobbles up the spike protein and takes it to the lymph nodes near where the vaccine site is and actually then neutralizes the spike protein completely. So the content of the vaccine and the spike protein after vaccination are removed from the body less than a couple of weeks after having the vaccination. doesn't travel around the body, it just stays in this region here near the arm. But what that does, the, the, the information from the spike protein, our, our innate immune system takes that information and communicates it with the adaptive immune system, so the T cells, B cells, to mm-hmm. start producing antibodies and those memory T cells that then remember what COVID is um but yeah so the spike protein in and and covid as an infection is harmful because it replicates uncontrollably triggers an immune response as you as you just said but in a way that's out of control and that our 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 body essentially can't overcome for a lot of people and that's how they become ill but actually the spike protein in the the vaccine is essentially dormant and it just carries the blueprint of what covid is so they're two very different things and i think we have to bear that in mind when we are considering the two
0: so you think all these reports of myocarditis, pericarditis in relation to um, mRNA spike proteins is absolutely non-existent?
1: No, I didn't say that. Myocarditis and pericarditis do happen after vaccination. But as I've already mentioned, that the, the cases are very clear that they're mild post-vaccination and always recover. But compared that to what happens in COVID, they're far more common in COVID infection, including in the demographic of young um, men. Who are more Why, likely do to Why do
0: they Why do they occur? What's the, what's the considered mechanism?
1: I don't think we understand the mechanism fully, but it's thought to be related to the inflammatory response that, we, that, the, that the virus causes. Mm-hmm. It's a similar res- inflammatory response that we have in the vaccine, but it's actually much more targeted and much more subtle because what it's not doing is it's not fighting a virus that's replicating out of control. We're simply mounting an immune response to be able to defend ourselves in the future.
0: Okay. Now moving on, the number of concerns have been expressed about menstrual cycle disruption, heavy bleeding, and even potentially infertility. Uh, I notice again on the MHRA site there are forty-four thousand suspected reactions relating to a variety of menstrual disorders. Um, yes, what's your comment about that?
1: So again, okay. So that's a really good question. So um, let's let's stop basing our um, decision on causation on the MHRA yellow card system because as we said that's that's a reporting system we actually have really good studies now that have looked into this in depth in lots of different demographics so we're talking about women who've had IVF treatment who have followed up regularly we're talking about um, women who've had vaccination uh, comparing um, the same age group to women who haven't had the vaccination and then looking at things like pregnancy rate miscarriage rate etc and Categorically, every single study that has looked into this has found no association with infertility in people who are vaccinated. There is no plausible mechanism by which these vaccines or any other vaccines can cause or impact fertility at all. Um, I will talk about male fertility in just a moment, but the menstrual irregularities is something that has been looked at in these vaccines, because, as you mentioned, there have been reports in the MHRA. And so one study that has I'm aware of that's recently published actually found no difference in the rate of issues with menstrual irregularities in people who are vaccinated versus not vaccinated. But it's just one study and we need more data on that. But menstrual irregularities following flu vaccines and HPV vaccines are widely reported and recognized as an an increased risk with those vaccines. However, those do not impact fertility. And we know that because these women have been followed through. So when you have a a vaccine you mount an immune response and that can impact your menstrual cycle that month or for one or two cycles but number one the advice is if if those menstrual irregularities persist beyond a couple of cycles you need to go and see your GP because it's not vaccine related and you need to be investigated and checked up to make sure there's nothing else going on and number two the people in the in in to the people in the studies following flu vaccine and HPV vaccine who've had menstrual irregularities, it always settles and again, doesn't impact fertility in the long run. So if you, women listening to this will know that if we gain a bit of weight or get a bit of ill with, you know, get ill with flu or travel and are particularly tired, we're going to experience menstrual irregularities and that's completely normal. That's how our body responds to added pressures. But we also know that doesn't impact long-term fertility. So it's the same kind of mechanism. male fertility, I just want to talk about because this is one that we kind of often forget and I think is very important. So lots of studies have been done in men, um, men's sperm quality, sperm count, etc., before and after vaccination or in people who've had the vaccine and who haven't had the vaccine. Um, and there's no impact on vaccination um, where, where sperm count or male fertility is concerned. However, there is a six to eight fold increase um, of erectile dysfunction in men who've suffered covid infection um and when we understand how covid affects the blood vessels and causes endothelial damage and inflammation that does mechanistically make sense um when we when we then study these men so we've we've had more and more young men come forward and um, reporting this as an issue and it's a component of long covid um, so i think again on balance it kind of that that's the information and then people can make a decision for themselves
0: and then, and then the final uh you know, adverse effect i wanted to ask you about is Guillain-Barré syndrome and basically, you know, autoimmune issues. Uh, there's been quite a few reports of that. I believe it was recently added into the sort black box list of possible side
1: effects. Mm-hmm. So, so Guillain-Barré is, um, is again, so I'll just explain what it is for anyone who's listening. So Guillain-Barré is a um, a neurological condition where we have um, declining um Strength, So so we have progressive weakness in our muscles that can eventually affect our breathing muscles that sometimes requires ventilation. Um, The vast majority of people get better and actually Guillain-Barré is caused by lots of things. Viruses, including Covid, cause Guillain-Barré, but vaccines can sometimes also cause Guillain-Barré rarely. And again, the data the time aware of, again, Guillain-Barré is more common in Covid infection than it is in vaccination. So again, that's the balance of risk and benefit in terms of vaccine versus COVID.
0: I know we're not going to go really into the younger age group, and I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Richard Halverson, who specializes in children's vaccines.
1: But I am aware
0: um, that AstraZeneca halted their um, teenager trial because they don't know who will or won't get the thrombocytopenia reaction. They haven't found the identifying as a genetic factor, what is it, And they've seen it occur in young people. Uh, So they reached the ethical position where they didn't think the risk was worth the benefit. But that's really just to make a point. Now, I think your main point, which we can get onto now, uh, which is how do we end this thing? Uh, And I think the point in essence that you're making is if enough people are vaccinated, uh, then the condition will spread less and I was a bit shocked two weeks ago when I got the latest UK Health Security Agency report, because what mm-hmm. it showed in adults over the age of 18, um, and this was per 100,000, so you know, we're looking mm-hmm. at it. Um, and you could see it across all the age groups. um, yeah. was, was 1.6 times uh, more likelihood of becoming infected in the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated. In my particular age group the number was twice so somebody at my age 60 uh, the number that they reported you know it's right there in plain view table 11a page so two. yeah so that, that that's
1: that's a misinterpretation of data, if I may say, Patrick, because what, what you've done and what a lot of people do, actually, and it's understandable, is you look at the infection and then you look at see who's vaccinated versus who's unvaccinated within that infection. Right. That, that's the way that everyone would read that table. Um, but that's like saying, just to use an analogy, that um, car seatbelts are not effective because the majority of people who die in car accidents were wearing a seatbelt when they died. But actually, the majority of people wear a seatbelt in the population before they get into a car. So what we have to look at is the rate of um, the rate of infection in people who are vaccinated versus the rate of infection of people who are not vaccinated. Mm -hmm. And we see that there is a five times reduction in infection rate if you are double jab, double vaccinated. And I'm talking about Delta now, because Omicron, I'm happy to discuss, there's more data on it, and it's slightly different with vaccination rates. Right. I don't, want, and to, then
0: also, I and don't th- want to understand this, because you know, you've got two columns. One says per 100,000. So if you have 100,000 yeah, okay. vaccinated people, this is the rate of infection per 100,000 vaccinated, and this is the rate of infection per 100,000 unvaccinated. I don't get that. it's
1: so, so it's, called, it's called the base rate fallacy. So what we see is, so if you, I'm trying to, and I normally have a really good diagram that explains mm-hmm. this, but because this is a podcast, it's difficult to do it. Um, what we're seeing, first of all, is a, we have a population that has the majority of people who are vaccinated. In adults, obviously we're not vaccinating children. Mm-hmm. And when you compare the infection rate in that population, it is lower. Compared to people who are unvaccinated. And what's more, the hospitalization rate and severe disease and death rate is significantly lower if you are double vaccinated. But over time, we do have a fall in antibody levels in the vaccinated rates, which is why we're offering boosters. So in terms of in terms of you're, you're talking about transmission as well, aren't, aren't we? Because if you have a population that is at the, vaccinate- other,
0: at the other end of this table. What it shows is three times more deaths and actually 3.1 times more hospitalisation in the unvaccinated than the vaccinated.
1: Again, you're taking a population that's predominantly vaccinated. And so what we're seeing is there are more people to begin with who are vaccinated even before they make it into that table. So what we need to do is compare the vaccination, the, the death rate in the vaccinated versus the death rate in the unvaccinated, not the deaths in that table it's it's very difficult to explain but it's it's called the base rate fallacy and actually in a diagram it's very easy to explain it's called the base rate fallacy but if you already in a population have more people that are vaccinated you are going to have more people in hospital who have covid vaccinated because there are more of us who are vaccinated in the population
0: yeah but this isn't the number of people vaccinated in hospital or whatever this is you know per hundred thousand so it's it's basically a sample of the same number of people but i'll tell you what um, send me your diagram
1: yes i will happily and yes um and the other thing
0: and I'll share. The other th-
1: yeah. the other thing to bear in mind is when we're comparing um, death rates and hospitalizations we have to look at the demographics of who's actually being hospitalized um yes we are going to have people who are vaccinated who are in hospital dying from covid thankfully at a much lower rate than the unvaccinated but the people who are vaccinated and who still end up in hospital and are not doing well are the very frail those with underlying health conditions or who are immunocompromised and actually those are people that we should be protecting on as on a populational level so that if we get vaccinated on as, as a population to be able to suppress the spread of the virus we protect those the most vulnerable who will not be able to derive the same protection from the vaccine. And that's kind of how it works. The so vaccine provides an individual protection, but also a, a populational protection, as do things like face masks and fresh air and indoor spaces and reducing social contact while we try and get the spread of the virus suppressed. Which
0: provides better protection, natural immunity, having had COVID or vaccinated immunity?
1: All the data that has looked into this, um, vaccine immunity. And there's a, there are a couple of reasons for that, because... First of all, if you look at natural immunity in natural immunity, a third of people who have COVID don't produce any antibodies. And the remaining that do produce varying degrees of and varying numbers of antibodies and not necessarily the right type of antibodies. So the vaccine um, results in antibodies produced only against the spike protein, because that's the information that's within the vaccine. And it's the spike protein that actually enters our cells via the ACE2 receptor and causes damage. So it's only antibodies against a spike protein that neutralize the COVID virus. Whereas natural immunity, if you're exposed to COVID, you produce antibodies to the 28 different proteins that are sat on the virus and not just the spike protein, which is why we get varying degrees of immunity. So actually, we've seen this quite a lot. So if you've had COVID before, we're seeing particularly with the Omicron variant, your risk of recatching that infection is much higher than someone who's had COVID and had their vaccines.
0: Now, I find that's different, had COVID and their vaccines. The, I, I find what you say very hard to believe for two reasons. Firstly, uh, I happen to get data directly from the Oxford vaccine group. And, and those people who are running and responsible for measuring antibodies, you know, basically measuring immunity. And they have shown me in their studies categorically uh, that natural immunity is better than vaccinated. They
1: have not. They have definitely um, just, not, because I know which papers you're talking about. Okay,
0: so that's the first. And the second, as I was just sent 137 studies showing that natural immunity is superior. We're not talking here about natural immunity plus Vaccination, we just no, no, I know about natural immunity, but it lasts, yeah, no,
1: it's 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 very. I mean, lost... I mean, we, we, we yeah. can sit here and, and debate, but the data yeah. on this is actually very clear that vaccine immunity provides more robust immunity than natural immunity alone or natural infection alone. Um, and of course, you're also bearing in mind that the natural immunity is based on those who survive covert in the first place or who don't end up hospitalized and develop. Long COVID with a chronic organ damage, so it's not just a case of oh, I'll catch the infection and I'll be immune. It's a,
0: I'll well, take
1: the risk of the infection th- um, and I then th- potentially not even develop good immunity to begin with. But but that's the data. It's um, yeah, it's quite yeah. clear.
0: Well, I'd like you to send me that because I that question it. Um, I think that there's a lot of people, myself included, who consider the, you know, that there is an innate immune system which is incredibly dependent on vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc, and various other. Uh, nutrients and uh, then there's the acquired um, immunity and it's this ignoring of how we can actually support and boost our immune system so the idea here is not you know just go and get infected uh the idea is go you know boost your immune system and if you get infected there's a whole lot of very simple inexpensive and safe tools that you can use to basically do what a vaccine is is proposed to do, which is to reduce the severity, reduce the duration, reduce the risk of hospitalisation, reduce the risk of...
1: But, but Patrick, you have made some sweeping claims there suggesting that having um, vitamin C and zinc is as effective as vaccination. It isn't. We, you don't have the data to back that up. I don't have the data to back that up. We have robust data on vaccination of over 7 billion doses given worldwide. Well, I and we've got randomised controlled trials, but we don't... I, I didn't actually you know. say
0: that. What I said uh, was that the innate immune system is terribly important. And I mean, I'll give you an example. We're doing a, a care home study, yeah. uh, in vitamin C, because as we know, a very large proportion of deaths, whatever it may be, 40%, you know, over a third of deaths have happened in care homes. And if you ask a very simple question, which is how much vitamin C does someone in a care home, not with COVID, just generally, need to have normal tissue saturation, nothing else, just normal vitamin C levels required for normal immune cell, white cell function. Uh, If you actually ask that question, uh, the only data exists in 1992, uh, which reported in the UK that 40% of care home residents at effectively scurvy levels of vitamin C. The only other information we have is... Yeah,
1: vitamin C is very important, I agree. But in terms of do we know if it's protective against COVID, that's yet to be seen, I think.
0: 18 intervention trials. I mean, they're there. Randomised,
1: randomised. Again, I think we're we're going back to this again. Yeah, I know. We we, we, we need better data. And of course, if it's beneficial, then yes, absolutely. But, but, you know, but the vaccines are safe and they have been proven to be very effective as have masks and as have good ventilation. And what you're talking about, innate immunity. Innate immunity is very quick, but not specific. So innate immunity will gobble things up, um, but it doesn't prevent severe disease. It It certainly does not prevent... Uh, infection. Um, it's the adaptive immunity that's what prevents infection and severe disease. That's the one that's actually specific to the to the disease that we're trying to protect against. And, so as
0: I'm an immunologist, just to learn it. if you get cold, mm-hmm. you get over it. How much of that is your innate, you know, immediate immune reaction, and how long does it take to acquire, you know, antibody immunity against that particular exercise?
1: So if you take someone who's never had a cold before, because of course people, the cold has been, let's rhinovirus or RSV we're talking about, Mm -hmm. these are viruses that have been around and are endemic in the population. And so everyone will have some underlying degree of adaptive immunity because it's something we've had before. Of course, the virus mutates. So when it comes across we'll have, we may have some antibodies that are circulating. The innate immune system actually does very little there. It's the adaptive immune system because, because it's come into contact with that cold virus, the rhinovirus or RSV before. Mm-hmm. where there may be some underlying antibodies that can that that can um, neutralize it before we even catch it. Um, but what's more likely is that we have underlying B cells, memory B cells and memory T cells that have seen the cold virus, so the rhinovirus or respiratory syncytial virus, that can very quickly produce antibodies and neutralize the virus. So that 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 happens within 10 to 21 days, which is which is how long it takes for the adaptive immune system to build its defenses if it hasn't come into contact with something before but the reason that vaccination um, helps is because we've done the work of all of that we've done the work by by giving um, the information of covid to the immune system say well this is what covid looks like Mm. Um, and so we cut that down from 10 to 21 days to almost no time if we have those antibodies that are lining our upper airways and and lower airways because as soon as we breathe in the virus the antibody recognizes it hangs on to the to the virus and neutralizes it gets rid of it before even makes its way into our blood but even if those antibodies have waned if the virus makes its way into our blood the t-cells that are already circulating will recognize it very quickly and bring it under control and that's also why vaccination reduces transmission because the majority of us won't catch, and this is not just for COVID, the majority of us won't catch that disease to begin with because we have that underlying antibody that can neutralize the virus. We can't catch it. We can't pass it on. But for the few of us that can go on to catch it, because we bring the virus under control very quickly, because we have that underlying memory of what it is and how to neutralize it, we actually have much less virus in our body to pass on to others. So it's the same thing.
0: Okay. Now, reinfection. Um, Is it rare? I'm looking at a systematic review. I'll read it to you. Researchers from Ireland conducted a systematic review, including 615,777 people who had recovered from COVID-19 with a maximum duration of follow-up of more than 10 months. Reinfection was an uncommon event. They noted with no study reporting an increase in the risk of reinfection over time. Absolute reinfection rate rated from from 0 to 1.1%, while the median reinfection rate was 0.27%.
1: So, so reinfection isn't just based on the individual and underlying immunity. it's also based on how much of the virus is around in the population. So my question for that paper, which I haven't read in full, is when was that conducted? Was it during a peak, or was it in the summer when there weren't many cases of COVID around? And again, what I want to know is what the infection rates was in people who had previous COVID versus people who've had the vaccine. And that's how you make a direct comparison,
0: mm-hmm. to say,
1: if natural immunity um, in inverse commerce, so if previous infection prevents reinfection versus vaccine-induced immunity, not just as a population by itself.
0: Yeah, um, without sort of meaning to go over old ground, the issue that um, occurs in the vaccine hesitant is that there's a whole um, population of people who have been following the kind of optimum nutrition principles uh, that I've been spending my life talking about that Dr. Linus Pauling, you know, really pioneered back in in the 70s and spent 39 years working on, who have, like me, um, I'm I'm 63 now, Uh, Mm -hmm. whenever we've got an infection, uh, we up our bit and see everything, you know, we do all that stuff. And it's terribly, terribly rare to suffer for more than 24 days. I actually got COVID uh, in the first round in the summer. It was very nasty. And it took me 18 hours to break it. And then I got COVID again a few days ago. And it was much, much milder. And again, it took me 24 hours to break it. So there's a lot of people, and I know you'll say this isn't a randomized control trial and so on, but they've just literally had that experience across their lifetime. And by the way, if you've never done it, and if you ever do get a cold, flu, COVID, or anything else, and just experiment with taking a gram an hour of it and seeing, it's an immediate effect. I mean, you know it. And so
1: I would be very careful to I mean, for, for me, I think whenever we give advice on, on what to do when anyone is ill, first of all, I would follow the advice of your GP or health provider because they know your medical they, condition better than they me know or how, you. because They know
0: nothing about nutrition. I mean, how much actual nutritional medicine did you get in your medical training? A day? I
1: got, I got, I got, no, uh-huh. I, I, it, it was part of my gastroenterology training. What, what, what's nutrition is needed for healthy bones, healthy immune system, etc.
0: But like, so again,
1: again, but, but again, you're talking about your experience, Patrick, yeah, you of having colds and things. So if, so, so if we take.
0: You didn't learn about vitamin C. I mean,
1: of course we learned about vitamin C. So
0: it's,
1: it's basic about- medicine. It's basic requirements for preventing scurvy and, why you know why it's important in the body, yeah, but but what about, what about I'm not
0: beyond scurvy? I mean, in, as you're in immunology, what about all the randomized placebo-controlled trials on vitamin C for colds, which there have been? We,
1: we yeah. So again, the, so 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 just just to go back to what yeah. you said just a moment ago about COVID. You had COVID. You had vitamin C, and you got better. Hmm. The way to know if that would have happened anyway. Or, because it, or whether it's because of the yeah. vitamin C. This is about quality of data and, and evidence. I'm not here to tell people what to do yeah. genuinely. I'm here to say, here's the evidence, here's yeah. how robust the evidence is, or here's what more evidence we need based mm-hmm. your decision on the evidence. Yeah. If we were to know if vitamin C was actually going to prevent severe disease or, um, or, or good recovery from COVID, the way to do that is to take 100,000 people from different age groups um, who have COVID and at the same time give them vitamin C as a group of 100,000 age-matched people who, who it's, it's, don't have vitamin C, and then follow them through to, to, to see their outcome. That's what's you, been done ask, with the vaccines. Yes,
0: but can I ask that's you- That's
1: how me. we know the vaccines work, because that's what we've done. Yeah.
0: No, 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 I know we have six RCTs, Although without we, the, yeah. we've got six RCTs on vitamin C, and uh, you know they will be criticized because they're not 100,000 people. But who is going to fund the study that you just mentioned? Because you and I very well know that if you're going to do a study with 100,000 people, you're probably talking about $10 million. And vitamin so, C is non-patentable, non-profitable, same with... This. No,
1: I'm sorry, I disagree because dexamethasone is non-patentable, non-patentable and the, the studies on that very clearly show benefits and so we're using it widespread globally to tackle COVID in people who are hospitalised because how many, there has been real benefits.
0: Yeah, and how many people were in the recovery trial?
1: I don't know the numbers but it that wasn't, the, that. Only yeah. that wasn't yeah. the only trial that wasn't the only trial that was conducted yeah but here's so, the
0: here's the weird thing because remap cap you know remap um like the recovery trial Rem oh you don't know REMAPCAP okay remap cap was uh, an international um uh, multi-armed trial to look at you know potentially uh you know beneficial antiviral treatments and um it had a very strange thing, because a vitamin, there is a, a rem, we campaigned for, and finally did achieve an, a vitamin CR in the CAP trial,
1: mm-hmm. meant to
0: be happening in the UK. And uh, then a very strange thing happened, because it was meant to start June last year. yeah And as of a couple of months ago, not a single person had been put into CAP even though there are a number of ICUs who'd signed up for it. And the reason okay. why none had been put into it, apparently, because uh, I've been following this one through, was they didn't have any supplies of vitamin C. <laughs> so I contacted the suppliers of vitamin C and put them in touch with the buyers of the ICUs. And they said, sorry, we're not allowed to buy from you. Anyway, we have finally broken that stranglehold on supply. And Remap Camp now, after two you know, whole seasons of COVID, is starting uh, you know, to have some people in the vitamin C arm. So the point okay. is, so
1: so we'll wait. We'll await the results uh, of that. Yes, and again, yes. if there's benefits, we'll yes. use
0: it. Yes, but the point is, um, what you've got, and you know, this happens to be the case. And anybody who's a professor of nutrition will tell you the same thing: is you've got a pharmaceutical industry um, who have billions at their disposal. I mean, you know, we know the billions that Pfizer is making, the money they can put into research, and all the rest of it. And whenever you have a non-patentable, uh, non-profitable treatment, be it exercise or diet or vitamin C or anything else, and of course, in the UK particularly, a very anti-vitamin position you know, within medicine, uh, it's, it's, it's- I would
1: dispute that personally, but please go, go on.
0: Well, I mean, one of my friends is, you know, is vice dean of Oxford Medical School and, 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 and it, professor of pharmacology. And uh, he told me the amount of time uh, you know, on nutrition in their training was, you know, was
1: just just. But there's also, but I think also we have to be careful here because there's there there have been multitudes of studies done on vitamins and many haven't found benefits. And I think that again, it's evidence. It's the evidence. Do we have the evidence that vitamins, you know, that vitamin X or Y does X, Y, and Z in this condition? It's I'm I'm not disputing that it could be beneficial. I'm simply yeah, yeah. saying that we need more data and more robust data. Um, and you know what? And, and, and again, if there is benefit, absolutely, we should use it. What I am saying is that we do have that robust data where vaccination is concerned. We have the robust data where mask wearing in, in uh, indoor spaces is concerned, uh, and fresh air. Fresh air is free. Anyone can have fresh air. If you open the window, the data is clear that it helps. Now,
0: before we move on to Omicron, um, mm-hmm. the other position that I have to say I come from, because I've spent the last 45 years in this field, uh, is just how dirty um, medical trials in relation to drugs um, can be. And uh, the reason that I mentioned this is when we had the first report, I mean, Pfizer have this, I, I mean, it's, I hate seeing it because out goes a press release, you know, which mm-hmm. claims whatever, 95% effective efficacy, you know? No study published, certainly not peer reviewed. Um, then, Then it comes out, you know, a month later or so. And then, as we always want, is, the, is we want a trial done not by the maker of the drug. Yeah. So, so Sweden did that, and the 95% drops down to in the 70% range. And then uh, we have the follow-up studies, and we start to see the waning um, you know, over the months to the point where you know, the average person is not really getting much benefit by the time you hit six months
1: i i would disagree with that but i'll explain why in a moment please okay. carry on
0: okay um and anyway so that's what we see and i think what was sort of stuck struck one as sort of particularly dirty is that original trial of whatever it was twenty-two thousand people vaccinated you know, versus placebo yeah in which there was one death you know and it happened to be in the unvaccinated you can't really do anything with one you know versus yeah. you know um, But then in July, uh, when they produced a more in-depth report, uh, what emerged is there were more all-cause deaths in the vaccinated group than the unvaccinated group. And when I looked at those all-cause deaths and and eliminated those that could not in any way conceivably, uh, you know, be to do with COVID or vaccination, for example, there was a suicide, there was a drug overdose and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the numbers were not big. It got down to 14 deaths in the vaccinated group and 10 deaths in the unvaccinated group. So, um, you know, my reading of that original study is it didn't show us that the vaccination is going to reduce mortality because there just wasn't you know, the mortality. Um, it didn't really um, establish safety. You probably disagree with that. Um, so um, w-
1: yeah. w- what I would what I would say is, is the, the the clinical trials didn't just give us population <laughs> data because they, yeah, they were collected down a on 100,000 people if you look at the three vaccines that we ended up using in the UK. They also gave us immunological data, which is actually key because that will give us an understanding of who's going to get protection, um, um, be it, the antibody protection. So when we have our when we have our vaccines, we produce antibodies that actually, as I mentioned, uh, line our airways, upper and lower airways, and our blood. Um, and those antibodies are key to neutralizing the virus and actually preventing infection in the first place. And we saw a really good um, antibody response in actually everybody who had the vaccine, including the older age groups, which is which is quite rare because often in people who are older, they have um, a vaccine and they don't mount the same good immune response that we saw with these vaccines. Number one. Number two, T-cell immunity, so T-cell and B-cell immunity, so so memory, the the adaptive immunity that we talk about, um, was again quite robust, but we saw that better in the second vaccine than we did in the first dose, and that's why the the full vaccination is actually two doses, not one, because we wanted to mount enough of a T-cell response so that even when antibodies started to wane, because antibodies will wane in any vaccination we've given in history, which is why we need boosters and we have needed boosters for all of the vaccines, doesn't mean the vaccine has failed that's just what antibodies do but when antibodies wane we have the underlying t-cell immunity which acts to prevent severe disease because those t-cells the memory cells recognize what covid is um, even if the antibodies start to wane um, and can still work to neutralize the virus and actually that's key to preventing severe disease and hospitalization so even in the populations who have antibody waning after a few months that um, that reduction in hospitalisation is still preserved because the vaccines are doing its job.
0: Now, should we, uh, if we're going into a gathering of a number of people, should we all just have a lateral flow test?
1: The lateral flow test is very sensitive, but not as specific. So, the lateral flow test will um, so if you have a lateral flow test and it comes back as positive, there's a very very high chance that you have COVID. So then you obviously isolate and have a PCR test and don't mix until that comes back. Obviously, if the PCR is positive, you isolate, you have COVID. If it's negative, um, it's some reassurance that you're less likely to catch COVID, but it's not 100% um, accurate. So with all of these things, so vaccination is not 100% effective because nothing is. Lateral flow tests, not 100%. um, Mask wearing isn't 100%. They've all been proven significantly to improve reduction in transmission and disease. Um, but the, the more measures we what we use together, the better we will be in protecting ourselves and those around us. So, I mean, this is common sense. You know this, Patrick. I know this. Everyone listening to this will know this. Uh, so, right. I'm I'm fully vaccinated and boosted. I wear an FFP2 mask when I leave the house to go anywhere that's indoors. Mm-hmm. I only go to well ventilated areas. I don't mix with people if I absolutely can avoid it. And I tend to do a lot of my um, work now virtually. Um, so these are all risk mitigating measures that I can put in place to reduce my risk of catching COVID and then passing it on to others, because my daughter, for example, is too young to have the vaccine. Um, so I will do my bit to protect her.
0: The current situation, as you know, is that if you're not vaccinated, then you lateral flow test. And if you are vaccinated, you don't have to. Some people can't be vaccinated. They've written into me with various conditions where that, that's not a possibility for them. The- others have had such terrible reactions. Uh, they've just said, never again, I cannot go through that. I, you know, there are some people who have been vaccinated, have had terrible reactions and are still suffering. Uh, so they're not, they're just not going to do it. And I just don't understand why, uh, despite its limitations, we shouldn't all lateral flow test. It seems the unvaccinated... We should
1: lateral flow test. Who, I, but, I, I'm, I'm not aware of the rule that says you can't lateral flow test if yeah, you're no, not vaccinated. Back- That's back- not correct.
0: OK, uh, well, that's
1: what's 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 correct is if you if you come into contact with it. So, so the rules are different in England, Wales and Scotland. So I would recommend that you follow the rules. So I'm in Wales and it's slightly different to England. In England, if you come into contact with someone who's COVID positive COVID positive, and you are vaccinated, you can have regular lateral flow tests yeah. daily. And. Yeah. Um, that that's the rule but um but if you but if you're unvaccinated you you uh, isolate.
0: No, the, the current rule is you know going into you know social events or places that if you produce your vaccine passport you had your
1: oh yes yeah that makes sense well if that doesn't happen because
0: if you haven't then you have to do a lateral closure. sorry
1: so yes yeah, so you meant vaccine passports yeah that does make sense because as i mentioned with the underlying antibodies so I'm so I'm double vaccinated and I've had my booster a month ago. Bear in mind that it takes two weeks after the dose for your adaptive immune system to actually kick in. Wow. So you're fully vaccinated once you've had your second dose and you've waited two weeks. So I'm, I'm double vaccinated and boosted. So I have my antibodies in my upper airways, lower airways in my blood, my T cells. Mm-hmm. If I come into contact with the virus, including Omicron, my, my risk of actually catching it is incredibly low compared to someone who's not vaccinated.
0: Now let's talk about so all one, But just before that, do you think vaccines should be mandatory? For who? Everyone.
1: No, no, I think, um, I think it's right that we mandate them for healthcare workers because we, we mandate other vaccines for healthcare workers. Um, and the reason for that is because as an NHS doctor, I will come into contact, particularly in my line of work, I will come into contact with people who are immunocompromised and vulnerable to the virus even if they're fully vaccinated because of their underlying immune system, they will not mount the same uh, defenses that I will. Um, and I shouldn't, I don't have the right to put other people at risk. Now, but in terms of the general public, no, I think we should just communicate the science and the science really speaks for itself
0: okay. in just terms of their safety and cheekily,
1: efficacy.
0: Cheekily in the American Webster dictionary, you probably know this, um, the, the definition of a person who opposes. Um, Sorry, I
1: missed missed the beginning of that. In the American uh, Dictionary. Yeah, in the
0: American Dictionary, the Webster Dictionary, the definition of anti-vax is either a person who opposes the use of vaccines or who opposes regulations mandating vaccination. So I only say that cheekily because it, it makes and I anti-vax, but I, I like the fact that you refer to vaccine hesitant, which is really what well yes, I Yes,
1: th- and I think that's a really important point because there are very different groups of people where this vaccine is concerned. There are people who've had all their other vaccinations, who followed all of the medical advice, mm-hmm. um, but suddenly are very worried about these ones. And actually, I think that concern is warranted because yeah. there's so much misinformation flying around and there is so much misinterpretation of data. And people who are going on social media and saying, well, look, this is what this causes and this is what Mm -hmm. this, you know, a a lot of examples. Actually, if you have access to accurate evidence-based information, people don't hesitate to have the vaccine, which is why the vast, vast, vast majority of scientists and doctors and et cetera are vaccinated.
0: Let's uh, end by talking about Omicron. And I'm going to uh, read the statement of Dr. Angelique could see the south african doctor who found the variant and uh, she says quite simply i've been stunned at the response and especially from britain let me be clear nothing i've seen about this new variant warrants the extreme action the uk government has taken in response to it no one here in south africa is known to have been hospitalized with the omicron variant nor is anyone here believed to have fallen seriously ill with it so um you know are we overreacting to omicron uh, could it not be a Uh, you know, even if it is more contagious, uh, a much less serious infection?
1: The key here is that we don't know and she doesn't know either. And I'll explain why that is, because it's all related to the natural history of the infection. So if if I was exposed to Omicron today, I will not necessarily show symptoms for about two weeks. Mm -hmm. In those two weeks, I can pass it to other people and then I show symptoms at day around 10 to 14, and then I don't need hospital. This is true for Delta and all the other um, variants. I won't need hospital until about two weeks afterwards. So actually from catching the infection to hospitalization for each individual who catches it, we won't know if they need hospital until about a month after the original infection. Now, bear in mind that this was first discovered just about a month ago. We will now start to see if hospitalizations go up. And actually, South Africa have seen a rise in hospitalization. Um, We won't know if that's Omicron or Delta because they have a very low vaccination rate um, um, in general. But um, I think it's too early to know whether it's going to have the impact on hospitalization. So so for her to make that statement, I think, is is, it's just too early. We just don't know. What we do know is that where a virus is more transmissible, Overall, it is going to infect more people. And we know that that always translates to higher hospitalization rates Mm -hmm. um, and deaths. I hope it's a less virulent virus. I hope it's much milder and that we're not going to be needing all of these restrictions and measures. But I would rather take the precautionary approach and realize that we don't need it than not take the approach and then realize that it's too late and have our NHS um, overwhelmed with hospitalizations. Because bear in mind, I'm sure you know this, but. if we, you know, we, we have a finite number of resources and if our beds are becoming um, overwhelmed with COVID patients, that's fewer beds for cancer patients and heart attack patients and car crashes and all the other things that our NHS provides care for. Mm-hmm. So we are right to take measures early and wait for the data before we can say for sure that it is or isn't um, um, more severe.
0: And then finally, um, the way it seems to be panning out now is a six-monthly vaccination. Uh, that's what pfizer have said as well and one concern that i Again, have
1: yeah i mean that dep- i mean that doesn't just i guess so 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 boosters don't just depend on waning antibody levels booster boosters are also a reflection of the disease rate so the infection rate within the population the transmission rate uh, a population with a high transmission rate is more likely to need boosters in a population with less transmission so if there's less virus in the population we wouldn't need to be running out to boost everybody. Um, yeah. Maybe just the vulnerable because the rate of exposure is lower. So it's it's not, just, it's not as simple as to say, yes, we're going to need it every six months. Um, because bear in mind, even when antibodies start to wane after, after some months, we still have that underlying protection from T cells that, that work well to prevent severe disease. And we know that two doses um, do protect against severe disease in about 70% um, where the Omicron is concerned. But it's that booster dose that, that really boosts the antibody um, protection to actually prevent infection um, at a rate of 75%.
0: And what about the long-term effects of multiple vaccines? The reason I'm raising this is there's some very good studies recently reported in the BMJ um, on flu vaccines that people in the following winter uh, are more susceptible, quite considerably more susceptible to respiratory infections. So- that's not
1: that. that's incorrect. So that's it's incorrect to say that's related to vaccines because of because, as we know, the flu virus itself mutates every year. And um, each year we vaccinate against the previous strain because we can't make the vaccine fast enough for the strain that we have access to just because of because of the fast rate that it mutates. And so the vaccination that we offer for the previous strain does still reduce hospitalization and death in the tens of thousands. Um, which is why it's worth doing it every, every year that we vaccinate for it. Um, the reason we have had um, a, we've, you know, we've had this nasty rhinovirus go around and flu virus go around, Well, bear in mind um, that these are these are viruses that are endemic, and that every year we catch them and every year we update our immunity on them. So our adaptive immune response, our T cells, kind of remember what it is and update themselves to be more recognising of that strain that we come into contact with. Because we've had all these social measures in place that have suppressed COVID spread, and because COVID is far more transmissible than all these others, the measures that we've put in place to suppress COVID have also impacted the spread of flu, flu and all these other um, nasty viruses that my daughter keeps bringing home to me from nursery. So actually, we've not had the exposure to these viruses. We've not, our immune system hasn't come into contact with them. So now that we are coming into contact with them, it's hitting us a little bit harder because we need to remind ourselves what these are. That's not related to vaccination. There is absolutely no evidence that it's related to vaccination. In fact, there's no plausible mechanism by which it can be related to vaccination.
0: Well, Bernard, I think we've come to the end of a very fascinating hour. Uh, you argue your case very well, and I wanted for all my listeners the chance to hear you know your side of things, so to speak, as a person who's committed to converting vaccine hesitant uh, to go get vaccinated
1: i mean I, I i'm honest I'm honestly not in the position of telling people what to do, I think. But I do but I do believe that people, social media and lots of stuff that's flying around is misleading people. And if you don't have access to accurate information and you're basing your decision on even just a little bit of misinformation, that's not an informed decision. And and as a doctor, I have a duty to make sure people have access to accurate information so they can decide for themselves and make an informed choice. That's literally all I'm trying to do. So I hope it's been helpful. and yeah, my, I'm happy to be contacted um, if anyone's got any questions.
0: My, my one request, if you have a shortage of time, is do please read our review of 12 intervention trials on vitamin C.
1: I will do. Thank you for sending it across.
0: Uh, thank you very much for your time. Do send any links or information you'd like to share, and I will find some way of uh, making that available to all.
1: Thank you, Patrick.
0: Stay well. Thank you for listening to this podcast, which is supported by a Facebook post with comments on specific assertions made by Dr. Bernard Talabani, giving evidence to support or refute various points relating to ivermectin, vitamin D, the toxicity of spike protein, natural versus vaccinated immunity, and other key points for your further consideration. Next month, I'm joined by children's vaccine expert, Dr. Richard Halverson not just on COVID, but all children's vaccinations. Not only their pluses and minuses, but also the changing face, attitudes and science on vaccination across his medical career running the vaccine clinic baby jabs. Tune in on Friday, the 4th of Feb for this second part of my exploration into vaccines.